in Easter. Today is a baptism service. A total of 10 people will be baptized across our two morning services today. We praise God for that. For over 2,000 years, people have been identifying with Jesus' death and burial in resurrection through baptism. And we've been seeing that in our study of the book of Acts, that people hear the good news, and some dismiss it, but some believe. And those who believe in Jesus and believe that he offers forgiveness and salvation because of what he did on the cross and in his resurrection... These people believe, and then they publicly identify with Jesus through baptism. And they also publicly identify with the church, with other Christians. That's a typical pattern. We've seen it in Acts. Belief, baptism, and belonging together in Christian community. We've seen in the book of Acts that this Christian community cares for each other, and, and, and of course cares for outsiders as well. They pray together, they study God's word together, they hear it taught, and they themselves proclaim the gospel to the world around them. We've seen that the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus doesn't always lead to belief in baptism and belonging. Sometimes it leads to indifference or annoyance or even vehement resistance and opposition. So turn with me to the the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 4 this morning. This is where we've been in the last couple of weeks and where we continue today. We've seen in Acts 4 the first wave of opposition against the Christian church. Last week we saw imprisonment, interrogation, threats, and more threats. So now the question is, How will the church respond to the changing tide of circumstances? We've already seen how Peter and John responded to the threats back in verse 20. Well, we cannot help but speak what we have seen and heard. And so you can threat us all you want, threaten us all you want, but we're going to continue to speak. But how will their friends respond to this new threat? How how will the church respond? Or we could just ask this question for this morning's text. What do you do next when you're in trouble, when the heat is on, when you're threatened? What do you do next? I look at chapter 4, verse 23 and following. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed... 
the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Oh Lord, sovereign Lord, our Father and our God, our Savior, we thank you for your word here this morning. We pray you'd help us to understand it, to grow by it, to be shaped according to it. Help us, Lord, to see our need for Jesus once again. Help us, Lord, to pray and to pray better. Help us, Lord, to be the people you've called us to be in light of your glorious grace. Amen. Well, we can consider this passage in three parts. It's like a plot arc. Remember that from school? A plot arc? In the simplest form, a plot arc just has a beginning, an end, and a middle. It has a setting, and then at the other end, it has a new setting, a new situation. And then through the middle, there's change or, or development that happens. And so we could word it this way for this morning's message. We're going to consider, number one, what's going on. That's the setting. And then the stuff in the middle. We could call it how they prayed. That'll occupy most of our time this morning. And then here's the new station or situation. Number three, how God responded. What's the result after they pray? So first, what's going on here? Again, remember the context of, of persecution, imprisonment, interrogation, and threats. And realize that these threats that they had faced earlier in this chapter were genuine threats. I said at our Lord's Supper service on Wednesday as we retraced our steps in chapter 4 here, I said their threats were futile. And ultimately that's true. We'll see that also in our passage today. But from an, another angle, humanly speaking, these threats weren't empty or hollow. These religious leaders, remember, who are threatening Peter and John, just weeks ago had seen to the crucifixion of Jesus. These were the ones who got Jesus on a cross. The threats in Acts 4 are, are not empty. We know that because of what will take place in the next few chapters. And yet, for now, the religious leaders decide that they won't do anything more than threaten. And so Peter and John are released. And so Peter and John, verse 23, went to their friends and reported what had been threatened to them. They went to their friends. Isn't that great? Friends. Uh, that word can mean their own, their people, their clan, their family, their group. Now, of course, they had friends who weren't Christians, but this is a great way of describing Christians. Our friends were, were that and more. Jesus laid his life down for his friends, and, and he's made us to be friends. And they pray together as friends. When they heard the report, verse 24, they heard it and they lifted their voices together to God. And what follows from here is the longest corporate prayer that we have in the book of Acts. It's the longest corporate prayer that we have in the New Testament. It's three times longer than the, the famous Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, you might know it as. 
This is a model prayer here in Acts 4. And there's much we can learn from it. Starting with the simple fact that in this situation, they prayed. They prayed. Remember, the early church was a praying church. Remember from Acts 1 that when Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes, they devoted themselves to prayer. Remember that when they were deciding on a replacement for Judas among the 12, they prayed. Remember Acts 2.42, that prayer is one of four foundational things that the early church devoted itself to. It seems instinctual and habitual for these people to pray. They'd heard the report from John and Peter about persecution, about threats, and no doubt those threats affected them if they too would be obedient to Jesus and represent him to the world. So they're facing trouble, they're facing threat, and they gathered up and they prayed. Now secondly, let's consider how they prayed. How did they pray? That's the main part of our passage, verse 24 to 30. And let me suggest to you that within their prayer recorded here for us by Luke, we can discern four specific things about how they prayed or things they prayed about or prayed through. First, they prayed through who God is. Do you see in verse 24 in the middle there, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This is how they addressed God. He's the creator of all, and he's the sovereign over all. They don't address God thoughtlessly, carelessly, tritely, or randomly. They address him specifically and theologically. Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Christian, you sometimes... Do you sometimes fall into the rut of beginning your prayers in the same old way and without much thought? It's easy to do. I know. It's easy for me to do. Many of, many of us begin our prayers by saying, Dear Heavenly Father. And there's nothing wrong with those three words, Dear Heavenly Father. But are we pondering what that means? That God is our Father? That He's a heavenly Father distinct from earthly fathers? That He is a dear heavenly Father? You're not going to think much about what that means if you spit it out so fast that it's almost undiscernible to the ears around you. Dear Heavenly Father. But that's the way we, that's the way we often begin our prayers with this on-ramp that's thoughtless. And you might want to react to that and say, oh, Ryan, let's not be too picky about how we address God. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, I went to my father. And I said, hey, dad. And I didn't think about what dad meant. He's just my dad. Well, that's one part of who, dad, uh, who our father is. He's a father to us. But the Bible describes him in other ways. What, what does it imply if God is only our heavenly father to us and nothing more? The Bible's prayers and praises address God in hundreds of different ways because God's glories are manifold and many. And we need reminding 
and refreshing and even some work and perhaps preparation before we begin to pray or just even a pause before we pray to think of who we are addressing. So learn from the Jerusalem church here. They address God as the creator of all and as the sovereign over all. And these attributes specifically will have massive relevance for the specific trouble that they find themselves in and for the specific requests that they'll ask at the end of their prayer. But, but they don't start with requests. They're not in a hurry to get there. They start with God. They start with his attributes. In approaching God in this kind of way, it does a few things all at once. It gives praise to God. There's praise in addressing God as sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This also rehearses for those praying. It rehearses to themselves what kind of God they approach, who it is they're talking to. And lastly, it reassures them that the one that they're addressing can do something, can help. So they pray through who God is. Secondly, they pray through what God has said. They pray scripture back to God. And specifically, they pray Psalm 2. In verse 25, it says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Now, stop there. We should just confirm our view of Scripture as being written by God through human agents, right? We call it dual authorship. You see it here? They, they think Psalm 2 came through the mouth of our father David by the Holy Spirit. Just like 2 Peter 1, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, back to what David said then in Psalm 2. They quote the first couple of verses of Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now let's just note this at first. They're praying the Bible. They're using the Bible in prayer. They rehearsed what God had said. It's such a good thing to do. It is good to use biblical language and passages and biblical ideas in our prayers because the Bible's ideas are better than than yours and better than mine. How often do we run out of things to say in prayer? How often do we say the same old things in the same old ways in our prayers? If you want to pray more and pray better, have your Bible open in front of you and use it in prayer. Also, the more we know of the Bible, the more we have it within us, the more we've stored it up in our hearts, the more it will naturally come out of us, not just in prayers, but also everyday speech. It should be a rebuke to us today, people with Bibles everywhere, in our cars and in our homes and, and on our phones and on our computers and study Bibles. It should be a great rebuke to us today that people in Bible times didn't have Bibles of their own and yet knew it better than we do. 
They just heard it and heard it and heard it and tried to keep it in and keep it in and keep it in. And as they did, it would come out and come out and come out. But they're not just praying the Bible generally or randomly. They're quoting from Psalm 2 for specific reasons, theological reasons and practical reasons. Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2 is what they quote. But Psalm 2 goes on for another 10 verses after that. Whenever the Bible quotes a portion of a passage, it probably means to communicate the whole of the passage. So verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 2 just introduce us to opposition against God and against his anointed. That's referring in the first instance to King David and also to the Davidic kings that came after him. The kings were against David, right? David was anointed as God's king. God was setting his king on his holy hill. But the nations around Israel, the kings and rulers and princes of Israel, often opposed God's plan and opposed God's man. Whether that's Goliath or King Saul or Absalom the son or Ahithophel the traitor. The rest of Psalm 2 goes on to not just record their opposition, but their futility. Verse 4, let me just read from Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs at your, your conspiring against God and his anointed. The Lord holds them in derision. As for me, God says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see why they're quoting Psalm 2? They're thinking of opposition and how to interpret it. And so now third, we can consider this, what it means for here and now. We saw what they quote from the Bible, what God said. Now thirdly, what it means for the here and now. What does Psalm 2 mean for them? How do they apply Psalm 2 back in Acts 4? Well, they apply it first to Jesus. Psalm 2 was first about King David, opposition against him, and the futility of that opposition. But it ultimately pointed ahead to the final king of David, the final and truly and ultimately anointed one, the son of God, Jesus. And so you can see the fingerprints of Psalm 2 all over the crucifixion scene. And that's what they say. Verse 27 of Acts 4. Here's their interpretation and application. They say, for truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together, same language as Psalm 2, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, same language as Psalm 2, now specific people here in the context of Jesus' crucifixion, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So just as the nations and rulers were colluding together against King David back hundreds of years before Jesus, so all the more now did they collude together against the ultimate king of David and the truly anointed Jesus. Both Jews and Gentiles 
Herod and Pontius Pilate. By the way, Luke 23 tells us that Herod and Pilate used to hate each other, but then they became pretty good friends over this whole Jesus affair. Sort of turns your stomach a little bit. It should anyway, right? They, they had a friendship around the arrest and crucifixion. But just like Psalm 2 notes the opposition to King David and his line and the futility of it, so the disciples basically say the same when applying it to Jesus. Verse 28, all this, all the, all the stuff gathering against the Holy One, Jesus, it was just simply doing, verse 28, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Meaning that the cross was no defeat of Messiah, but God's plan all along. The cross doesn't prove the enemy's strength, but God's sovereignty despite their sin. Opposition to God and his anointed is inevitable, but it is ultimately futile. Yes, those involved in the crucifixion were guilty, they're responsible. They freely rejected their Messiah and had him killed. And yet, mysteriously, it's true that God is sovereign over it all. Notice the language. It's his hand at work. It was his plan all along. It was predestined or predetermined to take place. So consider what this means for the disciples in their own time. They're not just drawing a line from Psalm 2 to the cross, but they're implying that this line goes through the cross and has relevance for them in the opposition that they're facing there in Jerusalem. They're saying the same spirit of rejection that was at work against David and against Jesus is now still at work against the followers of Jesus. And yet the same futility of stopping David and his path to the throne, the same futility of trying to stop Jesus and his reign as king, it's still futile today. It's still futile. So can you see also that this means something for us today? The line from Psalm 2 through the cross didn't stop with the apostles in Acts 4, but has been going through church history ever since. It's still relevant today that if God was sovereign in the crucifixion, he's sovereign over whatever small things are happening in your life right now that are hard. If God can use the crucifixion of Christ for your salvation and the salvation of the world, well, then he can use whatever little thing is going on in your life. Don't be surprised by opposition. But don't be too greatly shaken by it because God is sovereign. Now the prayer, fourthly, turns to request. We can consider what they ask of him. They prayed through who God is, what God has said, what it means for here and now. And then here's what they ask of him. They ask God for th three things. Verse 29 and 30. The first... And now, O oh Lord, look upon their threats. That's a request. It's interesting, isn't it? Look upon their threats. It doesn't say stop their threats. 
I'm not sure this close in the shadow of the cross that they would even think to ask for no threat, no persecution, no risk, no trouble. I'm not sure they would even think to ask that. You, you, can, you can ask that if you're facing trouble. You can ask that God would remove it. But here they don't. Let's just notice that. They say, God, take note. Keep track. Keep an eye on that. It's wonderfully wide open. I've, I've said before in, in sermons, I've, I've spoken in praise of vague prayer requests because it leaves God to fill in the blanks. Here's a vague prayer request. Lord, take note of their threats. In other words, you do what you need to do, however you need to do it. Take note. The second request, verse 29, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Do you know why they prayed for boldness here? Because they needed to. Because they likely felt the sinful pull toward cowardice and, and silence about Jesus. They were not above it. Yes, Peter has been very bold in these chapters in Acts here. It's marvelous to see how bold he has been about Jesus. But he also knows his past, doesn't he? He knows how easy it was and how quickly it happened when he denied his Lord three times. Yes, the, the disciples know about that promise in Acts 1.8 for power from on high to be witnesses. But no doubt that didn't mean they felt like superheroes for Jesus. They struggled to proclaim and be confident in what they said in some ways like you and I do as well. They needed to pray for boldness. You and I need to pray for boldness. All the more. We need to pray it for ourselves. We need to pray it for others. Their third request, it's connected with the, the one right before it. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. In other words, Lord, continue to work in powerful ways that confirm the word we speak. You see how these go together? Word and sign. They don't ask for miracles for the fun factor of seeing miracles. They don't ask for miracles because, well, Lord, there's a lot of hurt out there that needs remedy. That might be relevant, that might be a motive to pray for a miracle, but it's not theirs, not here. It's a gospel-oriented focus. It's for the mission. They're, they're asking for the message to be confirmed in healings and miracles and signs and wonders, not least like happened earlier in this story. In Acts 3, a lame man was healed. That raised some questions. Peter got preaching. He said, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is doing this. It's not us. Many believed. About 2,000 more were added around that time. They're not asking for the miraculous for their own private experience of power, but for Jesus' name going forth in the world. You might wonder, should we pray like this today? Should we pray for signs and wonders to take place? 
Let me answer that a few different ways. I think as a whole, when I'm done with my answer, no one will like my answer. But, but here it goes. I will, I will please no one with this. But let me approach it from a few different ways. Should we pray for signs and wonders? Number one, I don't see why not. I don't see why not. Just the other day, I heard of someone who uh, had an infant in her womb, and with three sonograms, it seemed very clear that the baby was missing a limb. And so the church prayed. Doctors were convinced the baby would be born without a limb. The baby was born with all of its limbs. Now, I know sonograms are not, you know, they're not perfect. I know doctors aren't perfect. I know there could have been four limbs and the sonogram didn't pick it up or something like that. But I also know stories where doctors are completely confounded. And uh, I assume that some of those are just the miraculous because our God can do it. He can put another limb on later. He can grow something. I mean, he raised Jesus from the dead and our God can do anything. So, number one, I don't see why not. Number two, we shouldn't expect miracles from God as if they're owed to us. On the one hand, I don't see why not. So pray for signs and wonders to be done. Number two, we shouldn't expect miracles from God as if they're owed to us. He has not promised you that, that your current illness or your, your spouse's illness, your kid's illness or this trial or problem or this, this joblessness will be fixed tomorrow. We, we can ask God for whatever we want, but we pray like Jesus did, not my will, but yours be done because he knows best distinguish between what he's promised in his word and what he sometimes does. Number three, don't underestimate the specialness of the miraculous in the book of Acts. Some healings in Acts aren't prayed over, they are commanded. Peter spoke a healing into existence in a way that I would not encourage any Christian to do. Healings in Acts are instantaneous, undeniable, and plentiful. They are spectacular. Peter's shadow heals and Paul's handkerchief heals. That's, that's something special. In the book of Acts, God was microwaving the growth of the church in a spectacular and, I think, unique way. Should we pray for signs and wonders? My fourth thing to say to that out of four is don't forget that God has other means for confirming the gospel as well. He doesn't just use miracles for the confirmation of the gospel. Remember Jesus said, the world will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. If we want confirmation of the gospel, and that's what Acts 4 is teaching us here, Remember, there are many ways in which God gets that done. Holiness would be one. Care for the church, another. Joy. According to Philippians 2, you not complaining. That's one way in which you stand out in this world. And some will notice that you're sort of not of this world. Just don't complain. All these things and others confirm to the world the truthfulness of the word we speak.
So don't think that God isn't at work if there's no miracle to confirm the gospel. God has many tools in his tool belt. Miracles is one. Your holiness is another. Now lastly, we come to this last section out of three sections. How God responds in verse 31. How does God respond to this prayer? Well, three things happen. Verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were together was shaken. The place was shaken. No doubt a divine sign that their prayer was heard and would be answered. The creator, the sovereign Lord of everything, shook a little plot of land to encourage the disciples' faith and encourage their their mission and their boldness to let them know he had heard, he is there. Shaking is sometimes a a sign of God's presence in Scripture. Like uh, Mount Sinai, when God gave the Ten Commandments, it shook. And Isaiah 6, when Isaiah has that vision of the temple, it shook. So he's there. Now, God doesn't always show show us his presence by shaking and quaking things. In fact, this is the only time that we'll see this phenomenon in the book of Acts. And so we remember that most often there isn't a sign of God's presence. We walk by faith, not by sight, and not by shakes, not by touch. But we have this quake here in Acts 4 For them who experienced it firsthand and for all those who would ever read about it later on, we have it here to confirm God's presence and his kindness and his answer to prayer. So we know about God's presence. We know God answers prayer. We know God is on the move and he is at work and he is shaking things up literally because we believe it from his word. We believe it in his word. It's written here for us. The place was shaken. Then, secondly, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, they'd already received the Holy Spirit. Look back to chapter 2, verse 38, if you want to know that. All who believe receive the Holy Spirit. We also call that the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's given at conversion. And then a Christian has that the rest of his Christian life. But here, filling with the Spirit. This is different than receiving or baptism of the Spirit. Apparently, there are fresh fillings of the Spirit. There are fill-ups, fill-ups of the Spirit in the Bible. I I don't know how else you explain it. Chapter 4, verse 8, Peter, who already has been baptized with the Spirit, has already spoken in tongues once, Now here, chapter 4, verse 8, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and said, and here, chapter 4, verse 31, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, not because they became Christians right then, but because God gave more of the Spirit right then for them to speak the word. Sometimes in Acts, filling of the Spirit also has an accompanied visible manifestation. So in Acts 2, Uh, There's a filling and baptism of the Spirit, and they speak in tongues. That happens again in Acts 19 here. Uh, They're filled with the Spirit, and the place shook. But sometimes in Acts, 
Holy Spirit filling happens and nothing visible also comes with it. It's not always visible. It's not always tied to tongues. In fact, it's only twice in the book tied to tongues. Anyone who says filling of the Spirit is manifested with tongues is right about 10% of the time, apparently, on the ratio of the book of Acts. People are filled with the Spirit in Acts 4 and 7 and 10 and 11 and 13, and there are no tongues. But what always comes with the filling of the Spirit is proclamation. Filling of the Spirit, and then they speak. In every case, search it out for yourself. Look up fill and full and full, filled and, and filling, and, and you'll see every one is followed by a bold proclamation of Jesus, and that's what we have here in Acts 4. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. So that's the third answer to their prayer request. They continued to speak the word of God with boldness despite the serious and real threats of Jewish officials. God answers prayer. He's there with them. He he hears, he, he is at work, he helps. Jesus is continuing to do his thing. And he is still today. Let me back up and review as I close this out. What do you do when you find yourself in a tough situation? What do you do when you're threatened, troubled, and tempted to fear? You do Acts 4. You get together with your friends, the church, and you tell them what's going on. You pray together. You pray to the sovereign God, the creator of all. You pray through who he is. You, you pray back to him what his word says. Rehearse the promises. Rehearse his ways of old, his victories of the past. Remember David. Remember Jesus. Remember the cross. Remember the resurrection. Reflect that God was sovereign in the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus. And so he is sovereign over the most heinous wickedness all over this world. If God was bringing good to you and to the world through the cross, then he is bringing good in your difficulties and woes and challenges and even verbal persecution. Follow Acts 4. Pray for God to keep an eye on you, to keep an eye on your problems. Let him fill in the details. Keep an eye on my problems, Lord. They may not go away, but you can trust him. Pray that in the meantime, God would give you boldness to represent him well in this world. Quit feeling like you're a chicken. Quit feeling beat down for your shyness about the gospel and just start praying for boldness. How many of us feel bad that we missed this opportunity or that we haven't gotten very far in that relationship? Are we praying for boldness? Pray for boldness. Maybe boldness will come. God answers prayer. 
Pray that God would continue to confirm to the world the message that we speak, whether it's in the miraculous or it's in the mundane muck of life where we care for each other. Pray that God would continue to confirm the word that we speak. Pray for progress in the gospel. Pray for conversions. Pray for God to multiply his people in this world. Know that he is present. Know that he has spoken. And the God who can shake a house and shake a mountain and shake this whole earth, well, he's near. He does hear. He is on the move. We know that from his word. And we see it in changed lives. We see it in the public testimony and the baptisms that we'll get to observe today. What a privilege it is to be reminded of what salvation looks like, of who we identify with, to to remember our own baptism where we publicly identified with Christ, portrayed his death and resurrection as our only hope, portrayed our death and resurrection from, from dead to sin and resurrected to new life to walk in him. That's our story. So let's get on with that now. Let me pray, and then we'll sing another song, and then Pastor Ron will take over to lead us in these baptisms. Oh, Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We thank you for your mercy, for your kindness, for your grace. We thank you for Jesus, for his perfect life and for his sacrificial death and for his glorious resurrection. And now that he reigns on high, we thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for your nearness to us. Thank you, Lord, that you hear us when we pray. We thank you that you rule over all this world just fine. It seems so chaotic. It seems so bent out of shape. It seems so gone astray. It seems like there's no hope. And yet, we know there's hope. You're the Savior. You're the ruler. And so we trust you. Help us now as we sing of your care for the world and your reign in this world, Lord, to do it in faith and in joy and with great confidence because of who you are and what you've said in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.